you know, there's some passages of scripture that when one reads, one, one starts interacting with you, if you've ever had to give a talk on things, you know, Pastor Kim, or remember Pastor Paul, there's some passages in Ron, he's talking probably most of the scripture, you get to some and you go, uh-oh, what did I get myself into? And I will tell you, if you read Judges 9, uh, you come away going, okay, what in the world have we gotten ourselves into? In fact, Barb asked me Wednesday, the, this week, she said, where are you going to go on Sunday? She had already read Judges 9 into 10 and wanted to pick out some music that would um, help with the service. And you read Judges 9, we have this character, Elimelech, and you read what goes on as people interact with this morning, and you go, yeah, what are you sing about that? I mean, how can you sing about Abimelech? And, and I told her some thoughts I have, and uh, fortunately I had uh, carved out time uh, early this week to have some of those uh, thoughts. But I, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, I wonder if anybody would notice if I just skipped. And then I realized I give you all devotions that says what we're going to interact with on the next day, every Saturday. Uh, if you do the devotions, whether they're online at pcstateprayers.com slash devotions or in your handout on the back, you you get what we're going to, pre I'm going to preach on the next day. Uh, well, maybe some of you would actually realize I missed it. And then I remember that, you know what, even the unpopular, hard, and really interesting passages of the scripture are necessary. We can't just gloss over because if we get in the habit of glossing over, we'll gloss over other things later on. And that's why uh, Paul said in Timothy, all of Scripture, really meaning the Old Testament, is useful. And so we are going to kind of try to track with what is going on in this passage. And so I want you to think with me as we get started. What is the greatest threat to the church? Have you ever thought of that? Thought about what our greatest threat as the global church, but also what is the greatest threat of our church? I'm going to tell you, I think Judges 9 highlights what is the greatest threat. And let us just, let me state it in the obvious, there are many threats to the church. It's not just one thing or another. There are many threats but I think sometimes we need to let Scripture show us what possibly could be the greatest threat. And I think Judges 9 does that. We learned this in Judges 9. Sin is everywhere. It's not just Judges 9. It's all of Scripture. Sin is everywhere. Paul says this. There is nobody living right, not even one. So who's included in nobody? That Sue was willing to say me, yeah, her, not me, but her. Who is everybody? Who is nobody? Everybody. Everybody. So you are a part of that. Not one of us is living right. And if you think you are living right, Lord bless you. This is there's not one. Now there's those of us who are living better. 
But if we start to start to realize that Paul isn't saying there's some that live better lives, and then there are those who don't live right at all, we would use that to justify. We get into judges, and there's a pride that is starting to percolate up. I'm better than so and so. Paul and all the scripture says, absolutely not. There's no one living right, not even one. The consequences of sin is everywhere. Not just is uh, that sin is everywhere, but the consequences of sin. If somehow the 65 and add another 10 or 15 online, uh, those of us, if all 70 plus of us could stop sinning today, wouldn't that, one, wouldn't that be amazing? It would be a miracle in and of itself. However, even if we stopped sinning today and we didn't sin, either the rest of the day or forever, because of previous sin of our own and others, the consequences of that sin would still exist. That isn't going away. That's why Paul says all of creation groans for his second coming, waiting for redemption to come about. So even if we could stop sin, there would still be the effects of sin. We can't stop that domino effect. And we could say, well, if Adam and Eve wouldn't have sinned, you're right, if they wouldn't have sinned, I bet somebody else would. But even if no one past Adam and Eve have ever sinned, the effects of the sin of one is passed on from generation to generation. That's a warning for those of us who have kids. If we are not careful, we will unintentionally pass our struggles to the next generation. Judges 9 is the rest of the story from Judges 7 and 8 of Gideon. They go hand in hand. Is Abimelech a, uh, a judge? Well, maybe, maybe not. We, it doesn't really ever give us the formula, so to speak, that the rest of the judges do. But we see the continuation on. We see judges reminding us that sin is everywhere and the consequences of sin is everywhere. And so we pick up Judges 9 and it says, Abimelech, son of Jerubbaal. And they go, wait, wait a minute, who's that? That's Gideon. See, when Gideon started out, and, and he did what the Lord said. The, the people around Gideon said, we're going to give you a new name. Jerubal, meaning may Baal contend with you. May he take his case up against you. Which would then be the threat. At the end of Gideon's story, as he goes on, he, we read that he, he created this idol. And in Judges 9, we, we see that there they are serving this idol. Baal Barith, meaning this Lord is the master of the covenant. And for a Jew, there's ringing a bell. Wait a minute, this one's the master of the covenant? What about the real master of the covenant? What is really going on? And we see the consequences of life, of sin, 
Gideon's sin of pride sets up the sin of Abimelech. This is why pride is so necessary for us in the church to see when it's coming up and to kill it as soon as it comes up. Because the pride may never, the sin of pride may not, uh, may not do anything within your life. Pride can be very passive in how it shows up. But it may be what gets passed on is no longer passive, but active. That sin will, will show up in a way. And so sin is, as we learn here, devaluing of others. Abimelech, he gets up and he goes to the people of Shechem and he says, Isn't it better if you have somebody who's somewhat related with you to you to, to be your king than 70 people? I mean, think of the logic. This guy is kind of brilliant here. Would you want 70 people to tell you what to do or one? And if you could pick, do you want the one that's kind of related to you? Or 70 people that aren't related to you? And it's almost a no-brainer. Well, yeah, I just want one. Yeah, why would I want multiple people? In my house, I have a hard enough time with the two women in my house telling me what to do. The older one is the nicer of the two at times. You know? And you... You guys get this, you know, Mila and Eliana are very similar in a lot of ways. Well, it's interesting every Sunday to watch them. You know? They, and they do that. And it says here in, in verse 4, they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple, and Abimelech used it to hire reckless scoundrels who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Oprah, and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jerubal. Now, we can easily go past that in 70 shekels. Anybody know how much a shekel is worth today? Those of you online, you're probably already going to uh, kind of just Google it. I mean, actually, you can Google it, too, if you want to. You know? Anybody know? Ron, do you remember the uh, correlation between shekels and silver and pounds from your days of teaching seminary? And you couldn't buy anything with a shekel today. You don't even have a shekel, do you? I don't think, okay. You know, it's roughly a little less than two pounds of silver. So I did what most people, I Googled, what is two pounds of silver worth? $700. No greater than $1,000. Think of that. 70 individuals were devalued for about $10 a head. Sin will always devalue others. How are you and I devaluing others? Do we put a price on someone? No, not in a way where we are going to take them out. We're going to sacrifice them, which is the imagery here. But you look at somebody from an economic point of view. What they can give versus what they are worth. Do you value? How else do we devalue others? We live in a culture that devalues life. All across the spectrum. How do we devalue others when we demand things to be done our way instead of submitting to one another? 
the D value of letter C. When we start going there, which is a very subtle way of looking at people. See, it wasn't just, it's not going to happen overnight that you're just going to want to hire a bunch of scoundrels and take care of your enemies. But with pride, you start to look at people and say, what are they really worth? How much is a pastor getting worth? You know, how much is someone like me worth? There's a portion we will never truly get away from that, but if we don't be aware of it, we start down the path. Do you value someone because they agree with you or don't agree with you? And we will. See, because what we find in Judges 9 is not only does Abimelech and sin devalue others, it is never satisfied. You would have thought, after taking care of 69 to 70 of his brothers, he would be able to be satisfied. One of his brothers, Joseph, interesting character, actually uh, doesn't do what his father would like in chapter 7 and 8. You would read back, and you get this idea that for some reason there's something going to happen with this Joseph. He, he says this parable, this prophecy about whether or not they did honorable because he's laying down the framework, the principle that it's not, if you've done honorable things, it will be satisfied, but if it is not honorable, if it's not respectful, if it's not the way of the Lord, it will only fester and never be satisfied. A little sin sooner or later becomes a little more sin, which becomes a lot of sin, which will be left you wanting more and more. Abimelech, after only three years, starts to realize that his sin is not satisfied. Actually, God stirred up the issue between Abimelech and his own family. Very similar to how he stirred up Abimelech, stirred up his own issues with his family. And he goes to war. He takes out others in horrible ways. He is never satisfied. Sin will never be satisfied. Be careful. Sin takes what is not ours. See, part of the issue with Abimelech, what we don't see in the, the argument of he's not a leader, he's not a judge, because everywhere else, in fact, if you were to flip into uh, Judges 10, after the time of Abimelech, a man of Issachar named Tola, son of Pua, the son of Dodo, rose to save Israel. That's the, kind of the formula every time. You don't hear that with Abimelech because he sees what the pride and the power that his father had. His name actually means my father is a king. And he wanted to make sure he would be king. So he took, he usurped authority to make it his own. He took what wasn't to be his own, or at least not yet. We don't know God's plan. And he takes it upon his own and says, I will take this. How do you and I do this? How do we use the power that is inherent in us being individuals? Do we use it to control others, to usurp, to take more authority than what we ought to have? Or do we look at the way of Jesus? Who said, whoever wants to gain their life must lose their life. The best, the most powerful among you will be those who serve you. Contrary to the way of the world. Contrary to the way of sin. 
Maybe this is a little bit of what Paul was working at in the early church, where he talked about don't use your power over one another. For others, for women not to take the power away from others in a way of usurping, but never about letting out a church gives the power away to empower the serve. Sin results in destruction. A little like story shows us this. He goes on, the animosity that goes on. They go out and fight. And Abimelech and his scoundrels are fighting against others. You know, the people of uh, Shechem, they, they go in. They, they, they go out. And they get uh, basically slaughtered by fire. Then he goes on to Thebes, besieges it. He's going to do the same thing because he's not satisfied. And then we get this interesting story where a woman takes a common object, probably a household, uh, you know, grinding stone, puts it over the edge, and knocks it. Man, is that not poetic justice? I mean, yeah. Because, see, it reminds us that not only does sin resolve in destruction, but there's coming a day when sin will be destroyed. And, and then, as if Abimelech isn't happy enough, he quickly tells his armor bearer, please go ahead and kill me so no one will know that I was killed by a woman. Anybody want to guess the irony of that fact that those words are in Scripture? He was so worried about how he looked, his pride, that never got destroyed, that we hear him utter the words, kill me so no one knows a woman really did. And we have both. See, because if we are not careful, the sin that you and I struggle with will destroy us. And we won't even realize it. We will think we still have an edge like a middle. So how do we apply something like this even more than maybe what I've already shared? What, why would the, the compiler of Judges, the writer of Judges, include this awful chapter? Why? What is the purpose? Why, why have this story? When we know how things start to go, I think it was a reminder to the nation at any point in time the greatest threat was from within. It was never the enemies on the outside. It was never just the Canaanites, the Midianites, the Amorites, the Parasites, and all those other ites. It was never them. It was always the nation of Israel itself. In the covenant, God hints at this. I'm bringing you into the land, but there's coming a day when you will not be satisfied and you will say, look what I have done. Their pride would become their fall. They would be their greatest threat. I asked the question at the beginning, what is the greatest threat for the church? Is it a declining moral fabric of our society, which is true? 
Is it uh, that fact that Sundays are no longer the only days that uh, are free, or they're not a day of freedom? Is it technology? Is it a leader in our government, or the fact that there are certain leaders in our government? I would submit that the greatest threat for the church isn't outside the walls. It's those of us inside the walls. It's me. I'm the greatest threat of the church. You are the greatest threat to the church. See, because we can think that just because someone else is worse off than us, that we, we stop seeing the sin within our own lives. And we stop, we see, as Jesus would say, we see the speck in somebody else, the speck of the sin outside the church instead of the plank that was right within. And if I'm not careful, I will brush my sin aside. It's not that big of a deal. But see, all sin is a big deal. Yeah, there may be lower sins, but all sin is a big deal. And we heard earlier, not one of us is living lives. Not one. Yes, the story of Judges doesn't stop here. It says this, after verses 10, I already read it. Toa, son of Pua, the son of Dodo, rose to save Israel. He led Israel 23 years. But God. See, God wasn't caught off guard by the sin of Abimelech. God wasn't caught off guard by the enemy of Israel itself. But God knew what he was doing. Paul says it this way, but God demonstrates his love for us. And while we are still sinners, Christ died for us because only the power of Christ conquers sin. You and I can't do this on our own power. That's part of what's going on here. Abimelech makes himself king on his own power. You and I are like Abimelech when we try to lead our lives in our own strength, our own power, by our own will and way. And we will lead but Jesus, the only one who's ever been perfect, the only one who has lived right, fully God, fully man, never sinning once, took sin and conquered it. You want to conquer sin? Go to Jesus. You want to have power over sin? Go to Jesus. It's possible. Will you ever get it? No, we're going to read in our devotions this week, Romans 7. I do what I don't want to do. I don't do what I want to do. You know, Paul's like, whoa, what's going on? There's always going to be a struggle with sin in this world. In part because sin's everywhere, in part because the consequences of sin are everywhere. But he says over and over in Judges, or Romans 6, 7, and 8, just because there's sin everywhere doesn't mean you have to succumb to sin. You can live differently. So my challenge to myself this week is to live a holy life. 
my talent shield. I can be so worried about the threats without that I forget my job as a follower of Jesus is to follow Jesus in such a way that I see the, the, the sin in my life and say, okay, Lord, take that, take that again. And I'm not so much worried about whether or not Pastor Paul sinned today yet. Or how many times he did. You know? Can I tell you what would be easier if I was just watching Pastor Paul and his sin? That's easier. But Jesus said, look at yourself. And then once, you, once we look at ourselves well enough, then we can help someone else in sin. Believe it's James, not James, Jude, not Jude, Peter, in the last books. Talks about in love, correct one another against sin. In love. See, because when I see my own sin for what it is, I can look at yours and go, I better be gracious because that would be me. But God, by the grace of God, by the power of God, you do not have to be a slave to sin anymore. That's the hope. That's the hope even in Judges. Is this time, three to five years of sin, reigning supreme, didn't stay that way. It's God. But God chose enough. And the same is true. Will you live a holy life? Will you allow Christ to dictate your way? Will you find the freedom that is only found in being a slave to Christ? Because when you do, you do find a freedom that truly is marvelous. You find the truth of the words of Jesus again. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. It's not a freedom to do whatever you want. It's a freedom to say, Lord Jesus Christ, you are the master of my life. And even when I don't understand it, I will choose to live as a slave to you. And in so doing, we find life. We pray with you, Father God, we thank you for this time. This time that we can worship through understanding your word. We can worship through being challenged by your word. That we can just worship you. Lord, help us to live holy lives in such a way, not that others think we are uh, better than them, but as people who can say there is hope that where you are today doesn't have to be where you stay. That there is someone who loves you so much that he died for you, but loves you so much that he won't leave you where you are. But instead will give transformation and hope and life and a new way of being and thinking and living. So Lord, may we belong to you this day and every day. May we submit ourselves over and over again to the life of Christ. And Lord, if there's someone who uh, needs to accept you for the first time and start the journey of being Christ-like, they would do so. If someone just needs to lay their sin down and, and put it at your feet, that they would do so. If someone needs to make any other commitment, Lord, you are calling them to do what you would have them to do. May they respond this day, whether here, at home, or wherever they are watching and hearing your word this day. May they always be responsive to you. Lord, we thank you and we love you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the conqueror over death and sin that gives us life and life eternal. Amen. Will you stand wherever you are and sing?